Uh, and I want to begin today just by talking about high school. <clears throat> Not your high school, but my high school. Uh, I was 17 years old. It was March of my senior year, a couple months from graduation. I was a, a youth group kid at our church, so went to youth group one evening. It was this time of year, March, and uh, buddy uh, Mike was there and his girlfriend Jane. Jane brought a friend with her, and I'm seeing Jane's friend. I'm going, like, yeah, she's kind of cute. And a month later, we went out for the first time in April of uh, our senior year, and uh, uh, the girl's name was Chris. And we've been going out ever since. And for the record, I still think she was really cute. But while we have been in each other's lives, like a long time, we still, uh, we're different. And we tend to look at things differently. And if you're saying, well, give me an illustration. Okay, well, here's one. Um, Chris expresses love for people by buying them things. Chris will see something for a friend, and she just loves buying gifts for people. Chris expresses love by buying things for people. You say, well, how is that different than you? Well, well, Chris expresses love by buying things for people. I experience her love when she's not spending money. (laughs) So there's a difference. She seems to view money as something that's spendable, particularly for the joy of other people and I tend to view money as something to be saved and invested, bah humbug. So that's, that's me. So, so seriously, I was standing there in the dining room, Chris walks in and says, oh, look what I got. And she'll pull something out of a bag for a friend of hers, says, I saw this in a store, it is just so her. And I go, what, is it like her birthday? It's like, no, it's just perfect for her. And I go, okay. She says, look what I got for you. I look at it and go, how much was that? And she goes, try it on. That's the entire conversation every time. Look what I got for you. How much did that cost? Try it on. See, this is why we don't fight as much as we used to because sometimes you go, no, we've already had that argument a couple times. We don't need, we don't need to have that one again, you know. But now, here's the deal. We do agree on kind of like the major things financially, which is awesome for our marriage. Uh, we agree that each year we should spend less than we make. It's a pretty big thing. We also agree that a large chunk of our income should be given away. And we also agree that it's important to squirrel money away for that time out there in the future when we may be unable to work. So the the, the critical things, kind of like spending, giving, retirement savings, we're totally on track with that. But other things, it's just amazing how two people who've been together for so long, living in the same home, uh, love each other, enjoy each other's company, have fun in each other's company, can just view something differently. So uh, money's weird like that. Uh, uh, what we use it for and what it does to us. What I do with money and what money does to me. And uh, what we want to talk about today, the conversation I desire to have, just I hope it's a super helpful conversation, is the relationship between, between the gospel and money. And, and by money, I just don't mean cash. By money, I mean what we have, what we want, what we need, what we think we need. The relationship between the gospel and money, because this series is called Gospel Change. So let's, let's begin here. It's, I need to summarize what this thing called the gospel 
is. Now, in, if you want to go back, if you missed weeks one and two, I'd encourage you to go back and watch those weeks. The old sermons are posted online because there's a more thorough explanation of the gospel. But this is just a crash course, just to summarize. The gospel. We enter this world really messed up. I mean, we, we call it sin, but it's the crud. It's the grime. It's the stuff we say, the stuff we do, the stuff we said, the stuff we did. This thing called sin, it's like, it's, it's like it alienates us from God, it separates us from other people, and it disconnects us from ourself. It, e emotionally, we're not in, even in tune with ourselves. And so the effects of sin, this grime and grud, it's thorough. It affects everything in life and every relationship. We, we don't even want to confess how messed up we really are. And then religion is usually, you know, how to you know, climb up to God, you know, how to reach God. The, the gospel is different. This is the God that came down to find you. And so we, early in the series, we showed this image of the crucifixion with just some very powerful words, someone took my place. The powerful message of the crucifixion is that when Jesus comes and willingly goes to execution for us on the cross, he was paying off debts that weren't his. It was paying off debts that were mine. It was paying off debts that were yours. And I think it was in week two, we talked about this deal called the double transfer, where when someone fully trusts Jesus to be their rescuer, your sin gets transferred to him, but his goodness gets transferred to you. That's the weird part in the double transfer. Your sin transferred to Jesus, Jesus' goodness transferred to you. And that means when the creator, God the Father, looks at you, it's like, it's like a robe. It's like you're clothed in Jesus. It's like God the Father sees you in the goodness of Jesus, not in your imperfection, but in the perfection of Christ. And because of that double transfer, a consequence of that is this. Three expressions that we looked at. Uh, you're infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure. Can we play along? Say those three expressions with me. Ready? Infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure. This is what this thing called the gospel does. It's something done for you that you receive, and it cannot be earned. It can only be received. Infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secured. Now, here's the question before the house. Someone who goes deeper into this thing about being infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secure, how will they view their stuff differently than someone who feels unloved or is trying to be loved? How is someone who is going deeper into the gospel, deeper into what it means to be infinitely loved, treasured, and secure, how would they view what they have, what they need, and what they want differently, wildly differently, than someone who doesn't feel treasured and craves to be treasured and longs to be treasured? How does someone who is going deeper into being infinitely loved, treasured, and secure, view their stuff different than someone living, someone living out of the insecurity of the past rather than living out of the security of the present. In other words, how does this thing called the gospel change what I have, what I want, and what I need? 
And so, my friends, I believe this is a lifelong journey, and I believe that particularly in our culture, a materialistic, advertisement-driven consumer culture, this is everybody challenge. I don't think anyone should walk away today going like, well, there was nothing in there that applied to me. I think it's universal, and I think it is a lifelong challenge. I don't think any of us would say, yeah, I totally solved that when I was 28. I think it's a, for me, it's a lifelong challenge. So let's just have a friendly conversation about three reminders. That is, as we, we open the scriptures 2,000 years ago, see the counsel that was given to the first Christians ever about this relationship between the gospel and their stuff. And let's get three reminders from three separate passages. So uh, reminder number one just has to do with the empty space. Reminder number one, the empty space space. And for this, I, I want to turn to some counsel that was given to Christians, brand new Christians living in a city called Colossae. And in our Bible, this is found as the letter to the Colossians. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5, we would find these words. It'd say, uh, put to death. It's like execute, right? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, that old you before you knew Jesus, the earthly nature. Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and, what's that last word? And greed, but greed gets a description. Greed, which is what? Idolatry. Here is a, put, the apostle Paul is writing to these believers, you gotta execute the old way of life before, before you knew that you were infinitely loved, treasured, and secure. Put to death greed, which is idolatry. Idolatry means idol worship, which is weird. Greed as idol worship. Now, uh, Sometime back, I was uh, in Chicago, Hyde Park, where the uh, University of Chicago is, and there's an Oriental Institute there, and there's the Museum of the Oriental Institute of Chicago. And I, I'm wandering through it, and I ran into this display case here, took a picture with my phone of this display case, and it's a display case filled with idols. And back in the day, someone would bow down to one of these figures and pray to one of these figures. They didn't actually think that the stone idol would answer their prayer. The stone idol represented a god, and so they were like beseeching, appealing to that god to give them whatever while they were worshiping the idol. And an idol, an idol is a counterfeit god. It's a substitute god. It's a god replacement. And the weirdness of this teaching in Colossians chapter 3 given to brand new Christians is this. It said greed, which equals idolatry. And you go, how in the word, world does greed become a substitute God, a counterfeit God, or a God replacement? And it, greed is trying to fill my life with more and more stuff. I can use that to try to fill a space that only God was intended to fill. So let's do this. Let, let's turn to a advice from a, a celebrity figure, just someone that all of us know and love, this guy right here. His name's uh, Blyze Pascal. Oh, yes, Jeff, Blyze Pascal. Uh, refresh my memory. All right, uh, Blyze Pascal was a French mathematician, physicist, and inventor like in the, in the 1600s, early 1600s. He was, he was a child prodigy. By child prodigy, I mean this, mean this. He wrote a textbook on geometry when he was 16, which means 
that if we went to high school together, we probably would not have hung out. Uh, he writes a textbook on geometry when he's 16. Mathematician, physicist, brilliant, genius type guy. Later in his life, and he died like when he was like 39 or something like that. Later in his life, he turned his scientific, mathematic genius in the direction of writing about faith and faith development. And so Pascal, in his, this collection of essays, is called Pensee, which is like re reflections. Uh, this is one of them here. Pascal wrote these words. There is a, and some of you will say, oh, oh, I've seen that before. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ, as Blythe Pascal in this work called Ponce. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every person's life that cannot be filled with an object or a trip or an accumulation of objects, but it can only be filled by God himself through Christ. Now, that statement has been reduced even further to something poster size. There is a God-shaped hole in every heart that only he can fill. Yeah, great, put it on a poster. It's kind of like, yeah, there's this little space in my heart that only God can fill. My friends, when, when Pascal wrote that, he was not talking about a little space. He was talking about an infinite abyss of human need. Don't think little space in your heart. Think more like the Grand Canyon. What Pascal was writing about here is that there is this infinite chasm in our hearts that we try to fill with something, this infinite void, and we try to fill it with stuff. And he said, it is a space. We are so empty. It is a space that, that is so infinitely large, it can only be filled by the infinite God. So just two words, just two words are good for us just to look at for this point. It's just the words never enough, never enough. So Chris and I, uh, years and years and years and years ago, we had a friend, uh, knew, knew her well, and I forget what kind of old beater of a car they were driving at the time, but she was kind of obsessed, I'll tell you how long ago this was, by getting a minivan, like a newer red minivan. And it just came up again in conversation and again in conversation and again in conversation. It is not an exaggeration to call it kind of an obsession. She got this newer red minivan. And it was just amazing. Sometime later, she confessed to Chris, the minivan didn't do it for me. Because <laughs> it's never enough. The, 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 the empty space inside, when we try to fill it with an object, it's an infinite void that can only be filled with the infinite God. And so a God replacement, a, a, a God substitute, uh, is just not, not gonna fill it with stuff. Now, I happen to have an idol here with me. This is a little statue of Artemis. Outside the city of Ephesus, there was the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this gargantuan statue of the goddess Artemis. You can buy one of like this at the gift store if you ever visit the archaeological site of Ephesus. And you go, how archaic, how barbaric, how archaic that they would seek the help of Artemis in taking away their loneliness and their disappointment and their need in life. See, we would never bow down and worship Artemis. We would turn to another god. The god that we would turn is Amazonius Primus is the god that <laughs> we would turn to 
I'll give you a second there. All right, Amazon Prime. You get home from a very disappointing day, a discouraging day. You're feeling disappointed, you're feeling a little depressed, you're feeling a little discouraged. And the ability, literally, to turn to a next day shipping location and just kind of browse just a little bit on your phone, on your tablet, on your device, and just kind of go, oh, shoes, those shoes look really cool. Belt, leather-bound journal. A flask matching the leather-bound journal because it comes in a leather-bound case. I don't have a flask. I don't use a flask. If things don't change at work, I might want a flask. (laughs) It matches the journal. That jacket, really cool-looking jacket. That knife, that is not just a pocket knife. That isn't something you carry around the backyard. That is a work of art. It's a work of artistry. What will I do with that? I wouldn't carry it around with me. I'll put it in a drawer with the others. (laughs) Search, Search inside for a moment and ask yourself the question, am I trying to fill something here? Because the fact that something will arrive on your porch in a cardboard box, perhaps the next day, it's like Christmas throughout the year. And I would tell you this won't make you happy. It's a lie. It will make you happy for about 13 minutes. And then we go back, and then we go back, and then we go back, and then we go back. What I'm trying to say is this. There is no mountain of cardboard boxes that can be left on your front porch that will begin to make a dent in the empty space that is you or the empty space that is me. A critical question is just the question, I'm disappointed, I'm depressed, I feel a little empty. It is called retail therapy. How can I fill that space? with something, and uh, the empty space. That's what Pascal was talking about. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every life. It's not a little space, it's this infinite chasm that can only be filled by God. Infinite space needs to be filled by an infinite being. You're saying, well, Jeff, that's easy to talk about for you, because apparently you don't like to buy stuff. All right, let's pick on me for a minute. So I'll say I wake up between three or four o'clock in the morning, as men of a certain age are prone to do, And on those days when I can't get back to sleep, this is where my mind goes. So that certificate of deposit, that CD, that matures in May. Now, I bought that when it was 2% return on investment for the CD, but now it's 4%. In fact, it's not 4%. It's 4.1% for a six-month CD, and it's 4.5% for a year CD. Do I want to tie that money up for 12 months? It's a difference of of up. Uh, four-tenths of a percent. What is that monthly? That's where my mind goes. And some of you are going, Jeff, that's just good financial planning. You need to think about that three or four times a year. I can think about that three or four times a day. I can think about that three or four times an hour. And some of you are with me where you find yourself going on Zillow again to see if your housing value has changed since last night. Right? And so it's just in these moments, I think, you know, my gracious God just desires to whisper, Jeff, are you trying to fill something? When the savings thing, what is it you actually want? And the answer is more. 
more. My friends, more is not a finish line. Here we go. More is never enough. Say it with me. Ready? More is never enough. Some of you right now are going, Jeff, this is my challenge. I am a minimalist. I organize my world around getting less of stuff, living with absolute the bare minimum. I need to tell you something. Your minimalism will not fail you. I don't spend money on stuff. Adventure travel. I like new experiences. I like trips. Your trips will not fail you. More on that later. In fact, it's not just stuff. The empty space inside is so big that if you are an approval addict, no amount of approval will fill that empty space. If you find out that you're funny and you can get people to laugh, no amount of laughter can fill that empty space. If you're wildly attractive, man or woman, and you find yourself that when you walk across a restaurant, eyes follow you as you walk, and being attractive is a way of getting attention, if that is the fix you get, no amount of attention will fill the empty space inside. See, the beauty of the gospel, what it means to be infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure, is that when I go deep into that, I am less likely over time to try to fill that cavernous space with stuff. There we go. The deeper I go into remembering the gospel, infinitely loved, treasured, and secure, the less likely I am to try to fill that empty space with boxes on the porch or a better rate of return. But Jeff, those things you mentioned, I mean the shoes, belt, jacket, those aren't bad things. Savings, that's not a bad thing. Shouldn't these things be enjoyed? Absolutely. We just need to remember the difference between enjoying something and putting our hope in something. Reminder number two just has to do this, uh, uh, enjoyment versus hope. Enjoyment versus hope. I don't want to turn here. It's a writing written by an older pastor to a younger pastor. The older pastor's name is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a younger pastor by the name of Timothy. So in your Bible, this is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And Timothy is getting guidance on how to coach the more affluent people in his uh, church community. And so we find these words, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timothy, coach these wealthier believers not to be arrogant or to put their, to put their hope in wealth which is like so uncertain, but instead to put their hope in God, and here we go, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This, my friends, as I believe that one of my biggest hurdles in life, how, how to enjoy it without putting your hope in it. Enjoy it without putting your hope in it. Enjoying an object or opportunity without asking it to do something for me it was never intended to do. So just know, for the record, I think one of the, one of the statements that our creator would whisper to you is just this, enjoy this. Those shoes that are so comfortable, enjoy this. Being able to get away for a weekend getaway, enjoy this. Oh my goodness, you've been in this cramped apartment or cramped house and you're able to afford to move into something with more elbow room and it's a neighborhood you love, enjoy this. 
having an emergency fund so that when something breaks down, it doesn't send you into a financial spiral. Enjoy this. Enjoy this. But put your hope in the giver and not in the gift. Enjoy this. But put your hope in the giver and not in the gift. And so you go, put your hope. I don't Put your hope in something. I don't even know what that means. Two examples. So first, there's this picture of a house here. I just want to say two words. Enjoy this. Just don't put your hope in it. To put your hope in a dwelling, in a house, whether it's moving from one apartment to another, whether it's moving from an apartment to a house or moving from one house to another house, to put your hope in it is, is subconsciously looking at that future housing opportunity and kind of go, when do we move there? There's something about that new space that will take away my loneliness, that will fill my emptiness, and will heal my brokenness. That's what it means to put your hope in it. Instead of having realistic expectations. Now, Chris and I, over, over the years that we've been married, we've owned three different homes. Every home we've lived in, we've enjoyed immensely. And every home that we moved into, uh, we've enjoyed that dwelling uh, as well. But when we pack, it's like there's a box for dishes, there's boxes for books, there's boxes for clothing. There's something also we pack with us that we take from house to house. It's all of our dysfunction and all of our brokenness. It travels with us. And somehow in our mind, we kind of go, once we get into that space, that will fill my emptiness and heal my brokenness, and it doesn't. I want to suggest to you that you might end, in, end up enjoying things more if you lower your expectation and don't demand that they do something they were never intended to do. Put your hope in the giver and not in the gift. The giver gives you these things to enjoy, but not to put your hope in them. So that's a house. Let's talk about, let's talk about trips. And the picture I have here is like this, you know, vacation Caribbean paradise. But this could be anything for you. This could be, you know, taking the kids to Chicago for a few days to do the museum thing. This could be a, a camping trip that you're looking forward to this summer. So I, I happen to pick this picture that just causes us to go, oh. Isn't there something about that picture that just causes you to go, the picture whispers to you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. <laughs> Jesus said that, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I've discovered something about, about vacations. Uh, not all vacation pictures are what you call brochure co compliant. What you don't see in that picture of that vacation paradise is that you happen to choose your week at a wonderful, warm, sandy place the same week that 400 college spring breakers chose the same resort. And it ends up not being that tranquil. Sometimes it rains. I have heard, I've never experienced it, but I have heard that sometimes families fight on vacation. You might find yourself, rather than being at your destination, at a hotel a mile and a half from O'Hare because your flight was canceled and you hope to get out sometime the next day. I'm not saying vacations are bad. I'm saying usually they're mixed. Usually they're mixed. And when someone says, man, we got this trip two months from now, if only that were next week. I go, if only that next week were... Why, if only that were next week? Well, if only that were next week, I wouldn't be miserable. See, let me give you some advice. Get as unmiserable as you possibly can before you go on the trip. I don't think I would pin your hopes on a trip to take the misery out of your life or repair your marriage or repair your family. We happen to take us wherever we go. 
So here's my advice. Here's my vacation advice. I know some of you are getting prepped to take off on spring break or whatever, uh, or looking forward to something in the summer. Here's my vacation advice. The better we do at enjoying imperfect people and an imperfect place here will prepare us for enjoying imperfect people in an imperfect place there. The better we do here and now at enjoying an imperfect people in an imperfect place will free the heart to enjoy imperfect people in an imperfect place when we travel. But it frees us from the lie that a week away will take away our loneliness, fill our emptiness, and heal our brokenness. It can't. The gospel does that. By the gospel, I mean infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secure. It allows me, one thing, to be less inclined to fill that empty space with stuff. And secondly, it allows me to just enjoy trips and enjoy things without demanding that they do something they were never intended to do. I am to find my hope in the giver and not in the gift. That's number two. Has to do with enjoyment versus hope. Uh, reminder number three, and I love this one, and this might be the most important one for you, has to do with lasting security. Lasting security. And I need to mention this, especially to those of you who are in a season right now where you're letting go of stuff. I mean, maybe some massive financial setback that you didn't see coming. Loss of a job, trying to scale down from two incomes to one. Letting go of a house because of a divorce that you didn't want. Those who are letting go of things. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we have this beautiful, beautiful statement where God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Hear that into your life today. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This isn't contingent on your ability to hang on to God. This is his promise to hang on to you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This is lasting security. It is so important because we go through life losing stuff. You can lose a job. You can lose a house. You can lose money on an investment. You can lose your health. He's saying here, understand there's something you cannot lose. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That is the second half of verse five. Would you like to see the whole verse? That's the second half of verse five. Would you like to see the whole verse? You sure? Okay, you asked for it. Here's the whole verse. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Crap. (laughs) Set your lives free from the love of money, be content with what you have because there's something more secure. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The idea here is that as you're losing things, once you're pulled into this gospel story, you won't lose him or rather he won't lose you. 
there's gotta be like a cynical mind or two right now today going like, okay, dude, I don't know what fantasy land they were living in. I don't know what it was like back in Bible land, but I'm dealing with some real disappointment here. Let me tell you what they were experiencing. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, people who were Jewish ethnically, but had become part of the Jesus movement, had become followers of Christ. Many of them had been kicked out of the synagogue which is the epicenter of community life. They had been dis in French. They had been broken up with by their community. And many of them had had their belongings confiscated because they were now followers of Christ. This, the, the verse we read, I will never leave you, never will I forsake you, is Hebrews chapter 13. If you just like go back a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 10, you find this in chapter 10, these words uh, right here. You suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. You're coming home from your baptism service and people are carrying your furniture out, out of your house and there was nothing you could do about it. And the writer of Hebrews says, when your stuff got stolen, you responded with joy because you knew you had something that could never be taken away. You had better and lasting possessions. What the writer of Hebrews is reminding them of is that if they have Christ and if they lose everything, they have everything. In just those terms, better and lasting, I just need a reminder how fast the new stuff becomes the old stuff. The speed with which the new furniture becomes the old furniture. The speed with which a new raise becomes an old raise. You're driving home in your car, you've just been told of a raise, and you go, yes, six months later, yeah. The speed, I'm sorry, do you hear something? Was that a cell phone? Is that someone's cell phone ringing? Oh, I'm sorry, it's mine. Give me a second. Yeah, hello? Hang on a second. What? I don't know what you're doing. You're going, is that a flip phone? Is that a flip phone with an antenna? Are you like auditioning for Breaking Bad? The series is over. Can you even text with that thing? Of course you can. Numeral two, press it once for A, twice for B, three times for C. Some of you actually got good at that. Uh, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, thanks. God's calling. He wants to remind you how fast the new phone becomes the old phone. <laughs> uh, can we go back to that verse? Just the one that says better and lasting because you yourselves knew you had better and lasting possessions. Now, here's the deal. What this means is, is that in our most disappointing moment of loss, of letting go, of letting go of something that you enjoyed, 
This is the house that you enjoyed, and because your body isn't working like it once was, it's now difficult to navigate stairs, and you let go of a house in order to move into something on one floor, and it feels like grief, letting go. In those moments where we feel most disappointed and even let down by God, are those moments when he reminds us, you get me. (laughs) When you have me and lose everything, you have everything. Because those three expressions, again, you are infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure, infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secure. All, All I've been trying to say today is this. We can get it and not get it. We can get the gospel and not get the gospel. There's always ability to go deeper into what this means, to truly believe that we're infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure. And the deeper we go into that story, the less likely we are to try to fill our lives with a mound of boxes or a better interest rate, the more likely we are to actually enjoy something without pinning our hopes on it. And the more able we are to let go of something, remembering what we have, a lasting security, a better possession. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's not about my ability to hang on to God, this is his promise to hang on to me. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I just gotta say, no investment, no box on my porch, no savings account, and no job have ever made that promise to me. Gospel change in relationship to my stuff means that the deeper I go into being loved and treasured and secure, the freer I become to think sanely about what I have, what I want, and what I think I need. powerful as we navigate life and culture in the gospel story. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade at our other campuses as well. I get to ask for God's blessing and movement as we move out into our weeks. Gracious God, first we just give thanks that we have been in each other's company today and had this privilege to open your word together and soak it in. Please, please, Use it to transform us, to shape us, to mold us, to let go with grace, to enjoy with joy and peace. Gracious God, continue your work this very week in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.